Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 207 with Dan McGinn. Dan is talking about getting psyched up, how it's done and why it's powerful. I hope there's things in life right now that are getting you psyched up. I am psyched up because on the day this releases is my birthday. So that's fun. Yay. And I'm also psyched up because we bought a place, we moved in and there's uh, multiple levels. So on the second floor, you've been doing all these renovations and now it's ready to rent out, which is cool. So if you know someone in Chicago who would like to have a charming three bedroom home, a four minute walk from the Brown Line, send them to me, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. And I'm also psyched up for just this episode, which is a whole lot of fun and a valuable conversation. So you'll learn one, how to amp up confidence and dial down anxiety. Two, how to psych yourself up with your own greatest hits. And three, the best pump up music there is. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep207. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our useful resources. One I dig and will highlight today is the magnifying glass. So right there in the navigation bar, you can click it and you can search all 200 plus conversations transcribed in full text. And so you can collect the relevant wisdom you need right here right now to aid you in being awesome at your job. But first, here is Dan's story. Daniel McGinn is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, where he edits the Idea Watch and How I Did It sections, manages the magazine's annual best-performing CEOs in the world ranking, and edits feature articles on topics including negotiation, sales, and entrepreneurship. He's the author of multiple books, including Psyched Up, So a big thank you to Dan for taking the time to share his wisdom with us and a big thank you to our sponsor. It is Text Expander by Smile. It's a piece of software I use every day. I'm at a computer and with it, I will type a small abbreviation of text, which expands to a whole lot more text. That saves me from having to type repetitive items or go hunting for a copy paste template situation and it multiplies productivity for a team using a shared snippet base. You can visit textexpander.com slash awesome to start your free trial. Now, here's Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into some of this fun. And I learned about you that you did a stint at Harvard Bartending School, but you say your relationship these days with mixology isn't the greatest. Yeah, well, you know, HBS or Harvard Bartending School is is the slightly less prestigious branch of Harvard. It's not Harvard Business School, it's Harvard Bartending. Uh, I I went in college, I got a certificate and like a lot of degrees, I never really used it. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to pour you a beer, but that's as much about as I can do in mixology these days. Oh, that's fair enough. You know, it's so funny. When I first read Harvard Bartending School, I was like, is that a joke? Like HBS, Harvard Business School, like they drink so much. It's <laughs> it's called Harvard Bartending School or is that that's a real thing? But no, that is a real thing. It's a real thing over in Harvard Square, or at least it was when I was in college. I'd, I'm not sure if the institution survives or not, but um, it was a reputable uh, school of mixology back in the 90s. Well, yeah, I found them on Yelp and uh, it seems like they're still doing their thing. So yeah, now I know. And so that's fun. Well, now I'd love to hear about 
You've got a book here. It's new. It's fresh. It's called Psyched Up, and that's an awesome title. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory in terms of what's it all about and why does it matter? Sure. So like a lot of people, when I'm not at my job, I'll sometimes turn on the television and watch some sports, um, especially here in Boston, where we're lucky to have some very good sports teams. So if you watch Tom Brady before a football game or if you watch an Olympic athlete before they compete, they're often doing a certain set of things. They're going through kind of a structured routine of, of superstitious rituals and habits. And if you are able to look inside their brain, they're thinking certain thoughts. In many cases, they've been taught what to do before they perform by a sports psychologist because there's a lot of research that shows if you have this sort of right set of activities before you take the stage or take the field, you'll simply perform better. The book argues that even if you're not Tom Brady, even if you are a an accountant or a lawyer or a consultant, you should have the same kind of routine before those important moments in your careers, before you make the big presentation or the big sales call, or if you're a lawyer before you go into court. So the idea is that you should have the same kind of psych up process that a top athlete has because it'll help you do better in your career. Okay, understood. Well, so I'm intrigued now. Can you maybe give us a tale of a before and after in terms of professionals who have been applying some of these psyched up principles and seen good things from it? Sure. A lot of the people who do this stuff naturally are themselves former athletes who learned to do it as athletes and then carried it over to their adult profession. So one of the examples, one of the people in the book is a neurosurgeon named Dr. Mark McLaughlin. He operates down in central New Jersey. He was a good high school wrestler, but he wasn't great at first until he worked with a sports psychologist and they figured out that, you know, he needed to be a little bit more confident and a little bit less anxious before he wrestled. So they came up with a routine of, of things that he would do before he went into the wrestling mat. He turned into a state champion. He went on to college. He was a two-time collegiate champion, Hall of Fame for his college. Today, if he's going to operate on your brain, he has the same kind of routine he would use before he wrestled. He goes through that when he's scrubbing and when he's in the locker room getting dressed for surgery. So he's a guy who recognizes, hey, this made me a better wrestler. Surgery is a very challenging activity. I should use the same kind of process. And I've met other people, but he's a good example. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about some of these pre-performance rituals, but maybe before we get into the nitty gritty of the actions, can you lay out some of the key principles that you discovered when looking through all the science? When it comes to being prepared, what are kind of like the fundamental things you want to have going? Sure. So my, I first started thinking about this a really long time ago, back when I was in high school. I played on the football and the basketball teams. And I was never very good at either sport, but I became fascinated by the things that the coaches and the players would do to try to get us all amped up before the game. So back then, I had a very simplistic view of what it meant to get psyched up. I thought it was like switching a, a light switch on or off. You know, If you're going to get psyched up, it's all about adrenaline and you mm. just basically want to sort of energize yourself, psych yourself up. Once I actually started doing the research now as an adult, I have a much more... Um, nuanced view of it. It's not just about adrenaline. It's not just about flipping a switch. I think about it more as a stereo knob with you know three knobs on it. You want to amp up your level of confidence. Generally speaking, the more confident you are when you are about to do something, the better you're going to do. You want to try to turn down your anxiety as much as you can. Anxiety is, in most cases, not going to help you very much. And then you need to adjust your energy level 
to be appropriate to what you're doing. If you're you know, making a sales pitch, that's going to be a different kind of energy level than if you're competing in something athletic. Um, you know, sometimes you need to be really up. Sometimes you need to be a little bit moderate. So those are the three knobs that I think about tuning to try to psych yourself up for any kind of activity. Oh, well, Dan, when you provide three things, it's so bite-sized and easy to rip right into it. So I dig that. And it's so funny. I was just thinking about knobs as I was adjusting the gain on my microphone situation mixer over here. And I like that. That visual alone already starts giving me a little bit of a sense of, I don't know, control or power or that I have a real sense of, of influence and agency over those things as though they were merely knobs I could turn at will. Exactly. And the trick to this is, you know, it's easy to say, okay, turn up your confidence, turn down your anxiety. Well, how do you do that? And in the book, I list a whole bunch, each chapter is a different technique. So there's, so some people use music, you know, lots of people will listen to a playlist or have certain songs they listen to, to help them get motivated, get confident, get energized. Um, Some people use anger. Some people rely on the coach to give them a pep talk that gets them up. Every person is different and kind of which tools from that arsenal you put into your own individual psych up routine are going to differ. But there's a broad range of things you can try to do to accomplish those three tunings. Well, so I'm intrigued. And if I have a variety of tools to use, how might I know which tools to go for? Or should I try them all? Or I guess I'm wondering if I'm in the moment and I'm thinking I would like to turn up confidence right now. You know, what would you recommend be some of the go-to moves right then and there? So for confidence, I'll tell you, one of the most interesting days of reporting I spent when I was reporting the book was at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Um, They have an entire department. It's called the Center for Enhanced Performance. It works both with their varsity athletes and with their ordinary cadets to teach them techniques to help them be more confident when they go on the playing field or when they go into a military exercise. So one of the things they did there is they made these custom soundtracks for their varsity athletes So pretend it was you, for instance, pretend you were on the lacrosse team at Army. The psychologist would have you come in and sit down in this special chair with these enclosed speakers so you were very immersed. And this first music would come on and then a narrator would say, Pete, you're the best lacrosse player in Eastern Division I lacrosse. You know, remember the game in high school when you shut out Shrewsbury. Remember when you stopped 17 goals. Very specific. Basically what it's doing in very detailed and dramatic fashion, it's helping you recall your greatest hits. And that's something that, you know, even if you're not a lacrosse player, if you think about your podcasts, you know, you've done a hundred and whatever at this point of them. There must be a few that are extra special that turned out better than the average ones. So one of the things you could do before you do your next podcast is go back and listen to your best one ever. That's one of the things I do before I have to do a performance like this. As a writer, before I sit down to write an article for Harvard Business Review where I work, I'll often take three or four minutes and go back and read part of the best article I ever wrote. It helps me remember a time when I was at my best. It helps me remember, you know, gosh, you really crushed it that time, you know, and now it's time to sit down and do that again. So that's one technique you can use. Think about your greatest hits. Oh, I think I like that a lot, Dan. And well, now I have to ask for the sake of the show notes and because we're curious, what was the best article you'd ever written? And let's see if you can link to it. So if it's a, an article in Harvard Business Review, the best article I ever edited was an article by the former chief talent officer of Netflix. It's called How Netflix Reinvented HR. And if you link to it, I'd be thrilled. 
Cool. Yes. Well, we'll certainly do that. So cool. So we're talking there about in dialing up the confidence, recalling the greatest hits is one approach. Any other favorite one to cover real quick? Well, so music is a technique that lots of people use in lots of different contexts. Um, it, if you choose, so choosing the right motivational music really comes down to two things. It's the inherent musicality of the song, what it sounds like. If a song, the first time you've ever heard it, if it makes you quicken your step and your heartbeat gets a little stronger and you just feel a little bit better, you're reacting to the intrinsic musicality of the song. The second reason a song will be motivational is if you have some sort of emotional or contextual relationship with it. If it was a song that played at your senior prom or if it was the song that your high school basketball team used for warm-ups or it's from your wedding or something like that. Songs can be motivational or meaningful for that reason as well. Um, so for certain people, again, this is all very individual for certain people, you know, on the way to that meeting or on the way to that presentation, uh, you know, pop a playlist in your car stereo. And, uh, that can be something that can help you feel a little bit better, a little bit more positive and upbeat and energized. Oh, thank you. And I'm wondering when you talk about the intrinsic musicality, have there been any studies done or things you've seen in terms of, oh my gosh, these are just some go to hits that I guess, you know, nailed the recipe for pumping up confidence. So um, the classic example that people use, and it's actually been used in a lot of research studies, is the music from the Rocky movies. I um, was and- listening to that today as I was unpacking boxes, Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> so one of the more interesting conversations So I, for this book, I flew out to Chicago and I spent a morning with a guy named Jim Paterek who played in the band Survivor and co-wrote that song. Oh, yes. And we spent a lot of time thinking about why, what is it about that song that makes it so motivational? It still shows up in people's playlists at the gym. He's heard of people using it in rehab clinics. Um, he's heard of CEOs who listen to it before board meetings. And he, you know, the, the simple answer to that is, well, you know, we all saw Rocky three and that song, you know, there's all these training montages. So when we hear that song, our mind goes back to the movie, we're visualizing it mm-hmm. and it just serves to pump us up. He argues the opposite. He argues that that song has been downloaded six million times on iTunes. And he argues that a lot of the kids who are downloading it have never seen the movie. So he thinks yeah. it's more about the intrinsic musicality. Yeah, that is an interesting perspective because I have seen it and it does fire me up. And especially, I think of Rocky Four, is the one with Ivan Drago as my favorite. <laughs> Just the, oh, the grit overcoming the technology of the Russian well-financed Drago is exciting. So, okay, so Eye of the Tiger or the Rocky movies in general, you know, we could debate whether it's because we have Rocky associations or it was just masterfully crafted from the get-go to have those intrinsic qualities. Any other, you know, hits for pumping up the confidence? Well, um, I talked with people at Spotify about this and they actually like did a data analysis and searched through playlists that contain the phrase psyched up. And they found a lot of kind of 80s rock, um, almost some hairband kind of stuff, which was uh, not necessarily what I would choose. But I think the more important point than the specific song titles is that this stuff is really individual. So I met a woman who was a um, successful professional in state government. And her psych up song before meetings was the Annie soundtrack. If she oh. listened to the sun will come out tomorrow. That's my jam. I'm fired up. Happy <laughs> and positive. It sounds really strange. I understand. But, you know, 
people – one of the things I learned in reporting this book is people are really different and what works for you is not going to work for me. And you know, we need to sort of figure out what works for each of us. Okay, understood. And so Spotify, that's so cool when you've got some nice sort of credentials and history of authorship behind you that Spotify will just run things for you. That's got to be pretty fun to have that research power behind it. So, so intriguing. And so I guess that's one thought right there that didn't even occur to me is you could just search Spotify playlists for words like that. And then you'll see other people's impressions and, and just sort of see what resonates for you to get that going in a hurry. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, music choices, there's other research tends to be pretty, pretty age specific and generational. Um, you know, people tend to listen to a lot of music and be very impressionable in their teenage years. It's a very emotional time in their life. So I suspect if you were just to search random psych up lists, the kind of results you find are going to skew a lot based on the age of the person. And if you find somebody who's about your age, you're more likely to find a mix that appeals to you. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Well, so now I'd love to get your take. We talked about the knob of confidence. And so let's talk about anxiety when it comes to bringing that down. And maybe before we even talk about bringing it down, I want to get your take on when it comes to, you make a point in your book about how you may be better off channeling the nervous energy rather than trying to tone down the jitters. How do you think about that? Yeah, so that is, that's a technique called reappraisal. And uh, some of the research, best research on it has been done by a Harvard Business School professor named Allison Wood Brooks. Um, she's fairly young. She's in her 30s. She went to Princeton as an undergraduate, and she was in an a cappella singing group, a lot like the movie Pitch Perfect. And in that role, she got to see hundreds of kids audition for this very competitive singing group. And one of the things she noticed is that people who talked about being nervous uh, tended to perform very poorly. And people who were optimistic and said things like, thanks for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here. They tended to perform better. So for her doctoral dissertation, when she got to the University of Pennsylvania, she actually did a whole bunch of studies trying to mani manipulate that. She you know, held singing competitions and she would have half the group say, I'm so excited. And half the other, half the group say, I'm so nervous. And in general, she did it with math tests. She did it with public speaking. Thinking to yourself, I'm excited is generally going to be more helpful to you than thinking about nerves or anxiety. Channel yourself into the positive uh, arousal state as opposed to the negative one. Oh, Dan, I love this and it absolutely resonates with me and how I've lived. And it's sort of like the sensation of, say, just before jumping out of a plane, skydiving, <laughs> you know, is quite similar to sensations of about to step onto stage speaking. For me, maybe different intensities or uniquenesses, as I've done many more speeches than I've done dives out of planes. But I totally connect with that. And I've even done it. It's just that easy for myself is I'll say, oh, wow. I must be really excited about this and just sort of reappropriation or reinterpreting the signals or the symptoms because really I think biochemically these are pretty darn similar in terms of, you know, heart rate or breathing or sweaty palms, you know, between fear and excitement. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So two points on that. So number one, um, I've talked to a lot of people who are sort of naturally good performers like you are, who they've never read this research, but intuitively, some of them will say, oh, for many years I've been, before I give a speech, I'll think to myself, I'm so excited. I'm really lucky to be here. So 
even though you know there's actual scientific research on this, this is something that you know people have intuitively come up with their own and found it quite effective. So I've heard that same sentiment um, from other people. The the thing about being sweaty and having your heart race. The, one of the other most interesting days I spent reporting the book was at the Juilliard School, the music school in New York City. And they have an entire course there that helps their musicians get ready to deal with the anxiety that comes with auditions. Auditions are a really important part of being a professional musician. And one of the things they do in class is they'll have people do calisthenics and you know run around and get sort of out of breath and sweaty and then stand in front of the class very quickly and have to play. And it's all about getting you used to being able to perform, even if your body is just sort of biochemically dealing with the, you know, the almost unavoidable parts of being nervous. So being sweaty, you know, uh, dry mouth, all these sorts of things. These are these are symptoms of anxiety. They're symptoms that musicians, you know, have to deal with r- routinely. And sort of accust- getting yourself accustomed to dealing with that is something that Juilliard finds quite valuable. Oh, thank you. So when it comes to anxiety, we talked about reappraisal. And then are there some other approaches you encourage in terms of dialing down anxiety? So at Juilliard, they teach a bunch of different things. One of the the technique that they probably rely most heavily on is called centering, centering, like the, uh, like being in the center of something, turning mm-hmm. that into a verb. Um, it is, it's a sort of a practice of breathing and a series of sort of very specific thoughts. It's one of these things, it's kind of a little bit like meditation, which is that you can read about it, but I think it's kind of hard to do, hard to learn just from reading about it. Um, there are some YouTube videos on it that are fairly effective at explaining and demonstrating it. Um, it's also the kind of thing that, you know, for not a lot of money and not a lot of time, somebody who's serious about it could call a sports psychologist and spend a couple of hours with them and learn how to do it. Some of the musicians I spoke with said, once you're good at this, you can do it in 15 seconds and it just, you know, calms you down much more than you would expect it to be able to. Well, that's intriguing and powerful. So it sounds like you're saying we're not going to get a crash course on that right now. But if we did investigate it, you know, what would be some of the basic things we see? It has something to do with key thoughts and breathing focus and what else is happening during the centering? Yeah, exactly. Um, in the book, I list like I think there's a seven step process that that they um, teach at Juilliard. There's a couple books on this. One of them is called Fight, Fear, and Win by Don Green. Um, so there's there's certainly resources out there. I, I think it's one of the for me at least. Um, once you get into things like uh, like that involve kind of body and motion and breathing, it's just hard for me to learn that kind of thing by reading. But you're right. It's um, you're trying to get specific thoughts. You're, you're thinking about sort of flinging thoughts out of your head. It's a pattern of breathing kinds of things. Um, somewhat yoga like in a way. Um, for me personally, I think it would be hard for me to learn to do it very well on my own. I would need some sort of actual instruction in it as opposed to me just talking about it. Okay. Well, that's a, helpful set of resources to maybe chase after and intriguing and 15 seconds to reclaiming an anxious state to one that's usable and functional sounds like a superpower that we could all benefit from having in our lives. The people I spoke with who learned to do it well would almost describe it as a superpower, I think. So that's not uh, not as much an exaggeration as you might think it is. Oh, cool. Well, no, I dig it. So thank you. And finally, you talked about adjusting the energy level. In terms of those three knobs, what are some of your favorite approaches for making that shift? Yeah, I think that's less about techniques than it just is about awareness. Um, so imagine you're going to be public speaking. Um, uh, 
first question when it comes to, you know, obviously you want to be confident. Obviously you want to try to reduce your anxiety. When you, when you think about the energy level, are you speaking to 10 people, a hundred people, a thousand people? Um, how big is the room? Um, uh, are you going to be moving around or not? Um, will you be using slides or not? Um, so I think, uh, you and I are having this conversation a few days after the um, Conor McGregor and Mayweather fight uh, out in Las Vegas. You know, think about how Conor McGregor goes into the ring. Um, now think about somebody who's giving a TED talk. You know, well, obviously those are two very different kinds of activities, and they need each of those people need to think about getting the energy level at the right kind of amplitude that's going to work for them. So it's mostly a practice of not getting too up, but not getting too down. It's sort of finding that happy middle. You know, it's so funny as you talk about being too much or too little for a situation. I am thinking of the episode of The Office in which Dwight K. Schrute is speaking at a shareholders meeting and just starts pounding his fists and talking about the sort of communist points about sort of the, the wheels of history are greased with blood. <laughs> and so I think like that is just a perfect example for too much energy for the occasion, because in a way, I think we think, you know, hey, in a presentation, of course you want your speaker to be energetic. That's just a good thing. Energy is good and, and no energy is kind of boring. But you're saying that uh, it could certainly be overdone. Yeah, I think that's true. I, when I was writing the book, almost every chapter could have uh, included a parody example from The Office because mm -hmm. they parodied just about every aspect of professional life. Um, but you're right that um, a lot of the fun that they had was, um, you know, the British version of The Office. Um, I forget the, the office manager's name there, but he gives a motivational speech to this very small group with really loud music. And it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> he's he's at, clearly at the wrong energy level for the for the activity that he's being asked to do. So that's, you know, when you're thinking about getting psyched up, um, you know, think about whether you're doing professional wrestling or you're taking a math test. You know, you definitely, those are both high performance activities, but they're very different when it comes to energy. Okay. Well, so with all this talk about the rituals, I'm really curious to get your take on power posing. You know, I've read some research that looks pretty darn good that power posing is for real. And I've read some folks who say, oh, no, actually, some other studies didn't quite replicate that. Where do you come out on this one? Yeah, um, obviously, it's a very controversial. There's a big academic controversy. It's kind of an intramural, you know, it's a it's about a big controversy among social psychologists. Um, power posing is one of the ideas that led me to write this book because it was an example of academic research that looks at something that you can do in the final moments before you perform that seems to be able to change the way you perform in a positive way. So it seems like a very powerful tool. Um, I, I don't have enough of a statistical background to go through the replication studies and say this one's right or this one's wrong. I do think that you know, in a lot of the things I talk about in the book, um, the placebo effect is a very strong thing. And I think one of the things Amy Cuddy says is that, you know, a lot of people have tried power posing and tell her that it works for them. And she wrote a book on it. The book is very well done and compelling. Um, so it's definitely something like all the book techniques that I write about. It's something you should try. And if it works for you, more power to you, regardless of what some replication study says, you know, I, I can't, know whether it's changing the biochemistry in your saliva the way the Cuddy paper said it does or not. Um, but if it makes you feel more confident and more powerful, why wouldn't you do that? 
Yeah, I hear you. Well, Dan, I just love to get your personal take. I think for me, it does. How about you when you give it a shot? Yeah, I, you know, the biggest criticism I would have of power posing is that if you do it where people can see you, you might look a little bit silly. Oh, right. <laughs> um, um, and so the, the idea behind power posing is what they call priming, the idea that um, something you do for just a couple of moments can put you in a different frame of mind. So one of the people I spoke with in the book, um, he's done research that looks at written priming. So it's, you know, if power posing works for you, great. But if it doesn't, or if you're sitting in a waiting room with other job interview prospects and you don't want to stand up and start standing like superwoman, one of the things this study says is spend two minutes writing about a time you felt powerful. And there's actual research that people who do that before a job interview tend to come across as more confident and we're more likely to get the job. Um, So there are alternatives that try to harness the same power that power posing has but that are a little bit quieter, a little bit less elaborate and visible. And so you might poke around at some of those. Oh, I really like that notion of writing about a time you felt powerful. It's kind of like a reprise, if you will, of one of the first things you mentioned, which is recalling your greatest hits. So they're kind of our, I think of them sort of two sides of the same coin there. Yeah, exactly. Um, They're a little bit different in the sense that um, the priming is a... um, a slightly, more, you know, again, it, it's a more active, you know, it's not just thinking about, it's physically writing it down okay. on a piece of paper and a computer. Um, so there's differences. But yeah, this this science of priming, um, it's something that I think we're just beginning to tap into. One of the studies I looked at, um, looked at the power of visuals. So a guy uh, who's a university professor, he would go into the fundraising offices at various uh, colleges and he would take half the group and on the instructions for who they were going to call that day and what they were going to say to try to get these alumni to donate money to the university, half of the instructions at the top would have a picture of a person finishing a marathon and the other instructions would just have blank space there. And over and over again, he found that putting an inspirational picture in front of people before they do a task made them work harder, made them work longer, made them more successful. And he actually didn't want it to work. He, he th- sort of thought mm-hmm. that the science of priming was bunk and he was trying to disprove it. And he kept trying it over and over and it kept working and working and working. He was really frustrated to talk to him about it. But you know that's, that's the theory behind, um, you see some of these motivational posters that companies will put up on their walls. Or even you know, if you go into a local, into a high school gym to, uh, you know, for a basketball game, one of the first things you'll see is the trophy case and the banners that they have on the ceiling. I think all those are sort of a, a subtle form of priming in the way they're subconsciously up there. The team is reminded of the fact that this high school has a grand tradition. Um, so things like that, companies can actually harness that. You know, in the wall in my office, I hang up some of my old articles that I like. And it's not like I stand there and stare at the wall and read them, but they're just kind of there in the background reminding me that I was successful. And, you know, again, increases the odds I'm going to do it again. Oh, Dan, I really like that. You know, at the risk of just exposing myself to ridicule, (laughs) I'm going to disclose that I keep my high school homecoming king crown in my home office and I don't put it on very often at all, usually just to be silly uh, with my wife, like, oh, I'm the king. But, you know, for the most part, I just like to have it there because, you know, that reminds me of a time in which I went from going to a pretty tiny Catholic grade school, preschool through eighth grade, to like the bigger public school. And I was in a situation where 
I really had a whole lot of new people I didn't know. And I managed to, over those years, really get to know them well, you know, form some good connections and relationships and rapport, such as I genuinely liked lots and lots of my classmates and they genuinely liked me. And then there was a physical manifestation of that. So I like to look at that and remind me of how I can connect with people and have good rapport, whether I'm interviewing a guest or whether I am working with a client over Skype. And so, so yeah, I have it and I am only slightly embarrassed about it. That's an amazing story. Uh, <laughs> and you're right, you might risk some degree of ridicule. Um, but, uh, it, you know, a lot of these things, uh, if it works for you, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and if you hadn't just gone on a national podcast and announced it, no one would ever would have known, right? <laughs> I'm hoping that there will be someone commiserating like, yeah, Pete, I do that too. But maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, well, Dan, this has been a whole lot of fun. Tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to put out there before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I think um, the idea is that, again, there's a whole bunch of different tools here. Everybody's different. So one of the chapters in the book looks at the use of anger and rivalry and trash talk, um, which for a lot of people who are very competitive can be a very effective strategy. Mm. For me, it doesn't really work at all. You know, I wrote a whole <laughs> chapter in the book on it knowing that you know I'm not someone that's really going to be able to trash talk you. you know, Your I article sucks, work. Dan. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so just because one thing doesn't work, you know, another thing might work, you know, whether it's a superstitious object um, whether it's uh, music, um, find the thing that works for you. And that's really uh, the, the message here. You know, when I'm looking to trash talk, which is just about never, so more often it's praise or instruct a recurring group of people via email. One of my favorite tools for that is Text Expander by Smile. With Text Expander, I'll type just a small abbreviation of maybe five letters, and then the software expands it to a whole lot more inside any software program. So for example, if I'm emailing a relevant group of collaborators all at once, I could type semicolon team, for example, and that will expand to everybody's email address with a comma between each such that I can very quickly populate the to line or the CC line, etc. as opposed to having to find an old email, reply all, delete all the stuff that was in the message, and then delete the subject to replace it. All that, this is a lot quicker and smoother. I also find it faster than creating a new distribution list for your contacts, and I can rock it in both Gmail and Apple Mail totally interchangeably instead of using just one. Text Expander for a team lets a whole group operate from a shared knowledge base with everyone using the optimal verbiage for those repetitive responses. You can start your free trial today at textexpander.com slash awesome. Text Expander is one of my favorite things. Now let's hear Dan's. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I hear a lot of quotes and I see a lot of them on social media. The one that jumped out at me uh, is one that Jimmy Johnson, the NASCAR champion, told me when I interviewed him for the book. He said, luck is what happens when opportunity meets preparation. Um, when we, we were talking about whether he's superstitious and what he does before races and he, he says they have sort of a systematic approach to luck. You know, it may feel like you just got lucky, but in fact, very quietly, there's just tons of tons of preparation that was there waiting for that moment. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? The best book I've read this summer is Gretchen Rubin's new book, The Four Tendencies, that looks at 
sort of a four-part framework of what motivates people, what drives them, what helps them meet the commitments they make. Um, I think people are going to be hearing a lot about it this fall, and I found it to be a very powerful set of ideas. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? So one of the uh, things I did when I was writing this book, Psyched Up, I was reporting on how superstition and lucky objects can help people perform better. Um, My favorite writer is Malcolm Gladwell. Um, So I got in touch with Gladwell. I sent him a brand new computer keyboard. He typed on it for three months in all of his writing and he sent it back to me. And so I now have a keyboard that was once used by Malcolm Gladwell as my tool for writing. I don't use it every day. I keep it on a shelf. But when I have sort of a high stakes assignment, a high pressure kind of situation, I pull that out, I attach it to my computer. And for that day, I rely on my lucky Malcolm Gladwell keyboard. Oh, Dan, that is one of the most fascinating and unique and applicable to the topic tools we've ever heard here. So thank you for sharing. And that was your request. Like, Malcolm, would you mind using this for a little while, then sending it right back? And he did just that. Yeah, I sent him the research. There's research that suggests that kind of thing works. So I sent him a paper because I know he's interested in that kind of stuff. But he was totally happy to oblige. Oh, that's fun. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? You know, like most people, I try to get to the gym and I don't get there as much as I should. Um, One of the things that's changed my habits is... Uh, my gym has an app and for an extra $20 a month, you can sign up for classes a little bit further in advance. And I found that the combination of paying the money, number one, and number two, signing up in advance and knowing that I've paid for the right to sign up in advance, that's made me at least a little bit more compliant with my exercise plan. It's not a, still not 100% compliant, but it definitely increases the odds. So paying and signing up in advance. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite nugget, something that you share in your writings that seems to really connect and resonate with people in terms of Kindle book highlights, or if you share it verbally, they're taking notes and nodding their heads. You know, what's a a Dan original that seems to connect? So when I talk about this book, I think the one thing that people react most positively to is the idea that, you know, imagine you're about to go into an event that's going to have an impact on the trajectory of your career. You have two choices. You can either sit there being nervous and worrying about it, or you can have a plan. You know, you can know exactly what you're going to do for those last 10 minutes. And I think people who just have a plan, any plan is going to be better than sitting there and being nervous. So that's the biggest nugget that people are seem to be taking away from the book. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Sure. The book website is www.psychedupthebook.com. I'm on Twitter at Dan McGinn, and I'd love to interact with people. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Practice isn't enough. You know, whatever you're trying to do, whether it's, you know, play piano or give an important speech, you know, practice is table stakes. You need to have gotten good at the activity. But it's not enough. There are plenty of great singers who've botched an audition and plenty of people who have not performed as well as they should, even if they practiced. So it's really practice plus having a plan for these last few minutes that's going to equal success. So I'd say spend at least a little bit of time figuring out what you're going to do in this final few moments before you you actually hit the stage. Oh, perfect. Dan, thank you so much for taking this time. This has been a whole lot of fun. I wish you many more smashing successful books and articles and occasions to use the Malcolm Gladwell keyboard and keep up the good stuff. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed this. You know, it's fun as I am recording these words, I am looking at some knobs myself in terms of sort of the audio equipment that brings it in here. And I really liked that idea that Dan shared in terms of, all right, getting psyched up is about tuning the dials. I am actually visualizing right in front of me, okay, I got the confidence, I got the anxiety, and I got the energy level, and I'm going to tweak them. And even just visualizing it, I feel an extra sense of power and control over these things as opposed to kind of just being a victim. Like, oh, hey, some days you got confidence, some days you don't. Likewise with anxiety or energy. And so it's like, no, no, I have a fair bit of influence and control over it and I will now wield it just like someone who has knobs in front of them can readily adjust each of them up or down. So even the visual alone, I find helpful as well as a nice little peg or placeholder to remember the actual tactics and approaches for doing that, the adjustment of those dials. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep207. While there, I encourage you to check out our sponsor, Text Expander by Smile. Give them a shot. Tell me what you're thinking. If you're using them in some cool ways, I dig hearing about it. And you can start that free trial by clicking the link in the show notes or visit them directly via textexpander.com slash awesome. And I hope you'll stick with us for our next episode. We are chatting with Vern Oakley, who will be discussing how to pour some of that psyched up energy into a great performance, whether that's on video or in a live presentation. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 